Welcome to Unveiled Faces, a Redeemer Presbyterian Church podcast. Please enjoy our future presentation. Our sermon text is about swearing vows and making oaths that bind oneself in an agreement. Um, But our sermon text is actually uh, dealing with much more than just swearing vows and making agreements. As Moses describes different scenarios in which a person either can or cannot be released from their vows and, and, and agreements, we discern that the essence of the instruction is the faithful application of an important biblical doctrine. It's the faithful application of an important biblical doctrine that's foundational to marriage and the family. Do you think you might know what doctrine I'm referring to? It's not a very popular doctrine these days. In fact, it's a doctrine that has come under a lot of attack within the past 100 years. Most notably, feminists have attacked this doctrine. This doctrine has been very effectively vilified by feminism and the women's liberation movement. And without even recognizing the impact feminism has had upon us, large segments of the American church have been deceived into rejecting the validity and the applicability of this important biblical doctrine that's so foundational to marriage and the family. Do you know the doctrine I'm referring to? It's the doctrine of headship. The scriptures teach us that a husband is the head of his wife and his family. It doesn't matter whether we're reading from the Old or New Testaments, the Bible clearly teaches us that a husband is the head of his wife and family. Yet today, this biblical doctrine, which is so foundational to marriage and the family, is being dismissed by many people as a vestige of a bygone patriarchal society. We're told that we live in a modern age where there's equality between men and women. We're told that society should no longer be structured according to the antiquated principles of a male-dominant culture, where women were nothing more than property, where women were nothing more than maids who cleaned and cooked all day, and where women were routinely oppressed and mistreated by their fathers and husbands. We're told that we live in a modern age, a modern age where women have been liberated from toxic masculinity. Women, therefore, must have equality with men. Women must have all the same rights and privileges as men. Women should be able to vote. Women should have access to higher education. Women should have careers outside the home. They should be combatants in military. Uh, They should serve as police officers and firefighters. They should receive equal pay for equal work. They shouldn't have to carry a baby if they don't want to. And they should not have to submit to the whims and dictates of their husband. There must be equality in marriage. It's 50-50. The wife has just as much say about what goes on in the home as the husband does. This is the prevailing ideology today. It's most certainly the pervading ideology of people outside the church, but it's also a prominent ideology of people inside the church. 
Just look at how many Christian denominations are ordaining women pastors now. And look at how many professing Christian brides have removed the promise to submit to her husband from her wedding vows. And look at how many professing Christian grooms are okay with that. Brothers and sisters, the American church has been deeply impacted by the spirit of feminism. And this has caused many within the church to dismiss the biblical doctrine of headship. So when we come across Bible passages that teach a husband has headship over his wife and family, some Christians begin searching for explanations for why that particular passage doesn't have application today. And when that particular passage uh, happens to uh, be found in the Old Testament, one of the most convenient ways of dismissing it is to say, oh, that's the Old Testament. Those things don't apply to us anymore. Well, we can't be so quick to dismiss everything in the Old Testament. It's true that certain things in the Old Testament need to be interpreted in light of the revelation we receive in the New Testament, but we can't just categorically throw out everything from the Old Testament because that's the Old Testament. Moreover, there are certain doctrines in the Old Testament that are called creation ordinances. And this term refers to the, the principles and commands that God established at the time of creation. Creation ordinances reflect God's design for the world and all humanity. They're foundational principles for governing all of life. And so uh, some of the notable creation ordinances that we see in Genesis 1 and 2 are marriage, work, dominion, stewardship, procreation, and the Sabbath. Those are creation ordinances. All of them are in Genesis 1 and 2. Now, somebody might try to argue that a command that was spoken by Moses was given only to Israel and to nobody else and therefore doesn't have application to us today. And they can get some mileage out of this tactic when selectively highlighting some of the ceremonial laws from the book of Leviticus. But that argument doesn't work at all with creation ordinances. Why not? Because creation ordinances were established at the time of creation. They were established long before God ever called Israel to be a special nation to himself. Creation ordinances, therefore, apply to all people in all places at all times. Headship, brothers and sisters, is a creation ordinance. We see it in Genesis 2. God created Adam, and he gave him work to perform. Then the Lord said it's not good for man to be alone. So he created Eve, brought her to Adam, performed the first marriage ceremony, and assigned Eve the role of being Adam's helper. Now, as we look at the way biblical authors reference this first marriage, it becomes apparent that Adam and Eve were not just two people getting married. Uh, their marriage, which was officiated, officiated by God, serves as the biblical prototype for all other marriages. And we see this, for example, in Matthew 19, when Jesus was discussing divorce with the Pharisees, he said that Moses permitted divorce because of the hardness of hearts. And then Jesus said, he goes on to appeal to Adam and Eve's marriage. He said, but from the beginning, this was not so. 
From the beginning, this was not so. And do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's pointing the Pharisees back to Adam and Eve's marriage as the prototype for all marriages. Jesus is is essentially saying, look at Adam and Eve. Look how, that's how marriage should be. Look to their marriage, that's how marriage should be. God brought the two of them together, made them one flesh, and man should not separate what the Lord has brought together. In other words, Jesus is appealing to a creation ordinance. He's showing us the validity and universal applicability of creation ordinances, in this particular case, marriage. So when we look at Adam and Eve's marriage, we see that Adam was given headship over Eve. Not only did Adam give Eve her name, which is an exercise of authority over her, but God specifically gave Eve to be Adam's helper. And this shows us that God's design of headship applies to the work a woman performs when she becomes married. Her work is defined by his work. Her work is to help her husband be successful at his work. And as we continue reading throughout the rest of the Bible, we come across other passages that show us other aspects of what biblical headship is. For example, in the New Testament, Ephesians 5.23 says, the husband is the head of the wife. This lets us know very clearly that the passage under consideration, Ephesians 5, is dealing with headship, that creation ordinance we we first identified way back in Genesis 2. And what does Ephesians 5 say about headship? Well, it says a wife needs to submit to her husband in all things. But it also says that the husband needs to love his wife and lay his life down for her, just as Jesus laid his life down for his bride. So biblical headship is not merely about the responsibilities God has given to wives. It's also about the responsibilities God has given to husbands. As the head of his wife, a husband is required to sacrifice himself. He's required to nourish and cherish his wife. And the husband is required to sanctify his wife with the washing of God's holy word. Our sermon text is another one of those passages that shows us how God designed headship to function within the family. We got Genesis 2 that tells us how headship applies to the work a woman does. We have Ephesians 5 that tells us what headship applies to not only the woman, but the but, the, but what the husband is required to do. And we have Numbers 30, which tells us something about how headship functions within the family. And as we consider the instruction given in our sermon text, we must not try to dismiss this as some, uh, something that was unique to Israel. We must not say, oh, that's the Old Testament, and think that we could ignore everything that's in this passage. No, this is the Lord's special revelation about how the creation ordinance of headship applies to all marriages in all places and at all times. The specific issue that our sermon text is addressing is swearing vows and making agreements. It's understood that when a person swears a vow or makes some other type of agreement that they are obligating themselves to something and they are morally required to follow through with that obligation. 
Look at verse two. If a man makes a vow to the Lord and swears an oath to bind himself by some agreement, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Now, this is the consistent teaching of the scriptures. It not only applies to men, it also applies to women. Men and women, adults and children, all people are required to follow through with the vows that they make or if they bind themselves by some agreement, then they should not break their word. They must do according to what has proceeded out of their mouth. When Jesus taught on this matter, he said that your yes needs to be yes and your no needs to be no. It doesn't matter whether you're committing to something major, like a 30-year mortgage, or something minor, like meeting a friend at the ice cream shop. If you say you're going to do something, then you need to do it. You're sinning uh, if you back out of your commitment. If you are sinning, if you back out of your commitment because you fail to fulfill an agreement that you committed yourself to. And the only exception to this, the only reason it would not be sin, is if you were able to be released from your commitment through one of the biblical means of being released. Now, what are the biblical means of being released, you might ask? Well, for starters, you can ask the person you made the commitment to to release you. And this may or may not work depending upon the disposition of the other party. For example, you can call up your mortgage company and ask them to release you from paying off the balance of your mortgage and they'll probably probably say no and that's their right to say no. They'll probably want you to pay the entire loan and if you don't pay the entire loan, then you are sinning. Why? Uh, because you made an agreement to pay the entire loan. Your yes needs to be yes and your no needs to be no. But what about something trivial, like meeting your friend at the ice cream shop? What if something important came up that interferes with the plans you made with your friend? Well, you can call up your friend and say, something important came up today, so I can't meet you. Or you can call up your friend and say, I know I committed to meeting you today, but something important came up. Are you willing to release me from my commitment so I can tend to this important matter? If you take the first approach, which is just telling your friend that you don't intend to keep your commitment, then you're sinning. You're sinning because your yes is not yes. You initially said yes, and now it's no. But if you take the second approach, which is to ask to be released from your commitment, then you're not sinning. You're essentially saying, I told you that I would meet you for ice cream and I intend to keep that commitment. But please understand that my circumstances have changed. Something important has come up and it would be a blessing to me if we can reschedule to get ice cream at another time. Are you willing to release me from my commitment? And more than likely, your friend is going to say, of course, I understand these kind of things happen. Yes, let's reschedule. That's one of the easiest means to be released from your commitments. It's subject to the other party agreeing, but in many cases it works. Now, there aren't a whole lot of other means for being released in the scriptures. 
But the one in our sermon text is of particular interest to us. Our sermon text describes another possibility for being released from a vow or an agreement. When a wife's husband hears about a commitment she made, he can overrule her and she's no longer morally bound to keep that commitment. And when a father hears about the commitment his daughter made, he can overrule her and she no longer is morally bound to keep that commitment. In both cases, the husband and father need to overrule the wife and daughter on the day that he hears about the commitment she made. He can't wait a couple weeks and then decide to overrule her. Uh, if he doesn't overrule her on the day that he hears of it, then his, her vow or agreement stands. But the husband and father do have the authority to overrule the commitments the wife and daughter make. This authority is part of his headship. This authority is part of his headship. And as you can see, in giving headship to fathers and husbands, God has given a significant, significant level of authority to fathers and husbands. And women typically have two responses to this, one of two responses. One, one response is, oh no, this is a terrible thing. And the other response is, oh yes, this is a wonderful thing. Now my guess is that the woman who thinks it's terrible for fathers and husbands to possess this type of authority probably doesn't understand God's design of headship because headship is not designed to be oppressive to women. It's designed to be protective to women. Headship is not designed to be oppressive to women. It's designed to be protective to women. Notice the wording of verse six of our sermon text. It speaks of the woman who binds herself by a rash utterance from her lips. A rash utterance from her lips. This implies that the primary reason a husband or father would overrule a vow or commitment his, his wife or daughter make is because she committed herself to something that's unwise. Something unwise or perhaps even foolish. A wife has the privilege of saying to her husband, I think I made a mistake. I don't think I should have committed to such and such. As a means of protecting her from her mistake, her husband is able to say, yes, I agree that you should not have made that commitment. I'm going to exercise my protective headship over you. I'm going to overrule your commitment and release you from that obligation. Of course, well, here's another scenario. A, a daughter may not even realize that she made an unwise commitment. She may have agreed to something that she thought was wise, but when her father heard about it, he immediately recognizes that it was actually an unwise commitment. So he explains to his daughter why it was unwise and why he's gonna overrule her commitment. And then he protects her from her mistake by releasing her from her commitment. He can do that. Now what woman would not want this type of protection? In God's glorious design of the family, he has compassion on wives and daughters. 
And this is deserving of our praise. All of us, all of us should be praising God for his tender care that he shows to wives and daughters. But this praise should especially be coming from wives and daughters, for they are the immediate benefactors of their husbands and fathers' protection. Now I realize God's design of the family requires wives and daughters to place a high degree of trust in their husband and father. Uh, They need to trust that these men will do the right thing at the right time. And I can understand why some women would be apprehensive about this. Uh, If their husband or father is foolish, or if he's irresponsible, or if he's oppressive, or if he's abusive, then he can make life very difficult for his wife and daughter. And rather than being the one who protects his wife and daughter, he becomes the one that they need protection from. This happens. We live in a fallen world that's groaning under the curse of sin, so this happens. And it's a travesty when it happens. But realize, this type of travesty is a sinful abuse and misuse of the authority that God gave to husbands and fathers. This type of abuse happens, uh, not just in the context of families, but all throughout society. Everywhere that God has vested authority into humans, there's the possibility that the authority will be abused. For example, there are crooked crops, uh, cops, crooked cops. Uh, police officers will sometimes misuse the authority that's been entrusted to them. And there are crooked judges. Some judges can be purchased with a bribe. And there are tyrannical kings. And there are prideful elders who love to have the preeminence. When abuse of authority happens, we deal with it by bringing appropriate correction to the situation. Either the person is removed from their office or they're disciplined or they're given appropriate counsel or some other measure is taken to rightly, uh, righteously resolve the situation but we don't throw out God's structure of authority. We don't throw out the entire criminal justice system uh, out the window, nor do we throw the entire church government out the window. And we certainly don't throw God's design of the family out the window. When husbands and fathers misuse the authority God has given to them. We need to use whatever corrective measures are necessary to bring a righteous resolution to the situation, but we don't blame God's design. The problem is not that God gave headship to men. The problem is that men are sinners. But there's the good news. There are godly men out there. There are good husbands out there. There are men who know how to bless their wives and daughters with loving, uh, protective headship. How do you identify these godly men? How do you identify them from the men who are not godly? Well, I suggest you start with 1 Corinthians 11, verse three. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Notice that this verse doesn't just say that the head of woman is man, but it also says that the head of every man is Christ. So both the man and the woman are required to live in submission to their head. The woman needs to live 
in submission to her head, which is her husband. The husband needs to live in submission to his head, which is Christ. So if you want to identify a godly man who will exercise loving and protective headship over his wife and family, look for a man who knows what submission is. Look for a man whose life demonstrates his own submission to his own head, that being Christ. For when a man submits to Christ, then he, he will be a blessing and a joy for his wife to submit to. When a man is in submission to Christ, then he will be a blessing and a joy for his wife to submit to him. Remember what we learned from Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5 tells us that the godly man will exercise headship sacrificially. He will serve the people he's leading, not have them serve him. He will have a sanctifying effect upon his family, nurturing them and cherishing them. He will build up his family, not tear them down. He'll strengthen their weaknesses, not exploit their weaknesses. He'll pursue whatever is good for them while protecting them from foreseeable harm. So I return to the question I posed a minute ago. What woman would not want this type of protection? What wife or what daughter wouldn't want a godly husband or father to protect them in the manner that God says they ought to be protected? There are at least two reasons why many wives and daughters don't enjoy this type of biblical headship. I already addressed the first reason, which is sinful men who misuse their headship in selfish and harmful ways. The second reason is because some husbands and fathers don't exercise headship at all. If abusive headship is the ditch on the right side of the road, then abdication of headship is the ditch on the left side of the road. Both are harmful to the family. Both leave wives and daughters without the protection God designed for them. Let me call your attention to a statement that appears five times in our sermon text. Five times the Lord addresses the consequences of a husband and father who make no response to his wife and daughter. Five times the Lord says that if a man hears what his wife or daughter has vowed but makes no response to it, then he confirms all her vows and all her agreements that bind her. We see this in verse four, verse seven, verse 11, and twice in verse 14. Now, if her husband makes no response, whatever to her from day to day, then he confirms all her vows and all the agreements that bind her. He confirms them because he made no response to her on the day that he heard them. You've heard the phrase, silence is consent. This is what our sermon text is affirming. The man who does and says nothing is giving his approval to what his wife and daughter have committed themselves to. And this is okay if he agrees with what his wife and daughter have committed themselves to. It still might be helpful for him to say something to them about it, maybe something encouraging like, I'm proud of you, I think you made a wise commitment, but when he agrees with what his wife and daughter are doing, he can know that his silence is affirming something good. But what about the man who, silence, uh, who is silent when he doesn't 
agree with what his wife and daughter are doing? What about the husband who knows that his wife is making unwise commitments, yet he doesn't say anything about it? And what about the father who knows his daughter is committing herself to a bad relationship, but he doesn't say anything or do anything about it? What our sermon text is telling us is that saying and doing nothing is giving approval. The, the, the husband, the father, is giving approval to his wife and children. He's not just staying out of it, letting them have their own way. No, he's giving his approval, God says. He's confirming their choices. And in, in, and in so doing, he's abdicating the responsibility God has given him to protect his family. He's forsaking his headship because he's not being the protector that God says he should be when he knows his wife and daughter have made unwise and foolish decisions. I can think of three reasons why a man would do this. Either he's ignorant, he's lazy, or he's a coward. If he's ignorant of what God requires of him, then somebody needs to teach him. This man may be a new Christian. He may be new to the faith. He may just be learning what the Bible says about uh, how to be a husband to a wife and how to be a father to his daughter. He probably didn't have a godly father to serve as a righteous role model when he was growing up. So what this man needs is a godly mentor. He needs a mature Christian man to come alongside him and teach him how to be a godly husband and a godly father. But if the man is lazy, well, that's a different situation. Exercising headship requires work. Sometimes it's tedious work. Uh, other times it's strenuous work. Almost always it's tiresome work. A diligent husband and father will persevere through the tedious, strenuous, and tiresome work, but a lazy man won't. The lazy man will have little flurries of productive activity, when things get uh, out of control in his house, he might put forth the effort to address the immediate threat, but he won't remain committed to this effort. Uh, he'll taper off just as quickly as he ramped up. Proverbs 12, verse 27 describes this man's lack of perseverance. The lazy man does not roast what he took in hunting, but diligence is man's precious possession. The lazy man does not roast what he took in hunting, meaning he put forth the initial effort to go out and hunt something to eat, but then he's too lazy to cook it. He doesn't carry the process through to its completion. He doesn't finish what he started. He bursts out of the starting blocks, but after jumping over one or two hurdles, he stops running. He sees the green grass in the center of the, the track, and so he lays down to rest, never crossing the finish line. That's laziness. And many men don't exercise their headship because of laziness. And the third reason men abdicate their headship is because they're cowards. In, the, in this case, the man knows what he's supposed to do, so he can't claim ignorance but he doesn't have the backbone to do what he knows he needs to do. He sees his wife making unwise commitments, yet he won't overrule her because he's afraid of her reaction. 
He's afraid of her reaction. And, and she knows this about her husband. She knows he's a coward. When you live with somebody for many years, you figure these things out. So if she's an independent-minded woman who doesn't want her husband exercising headship over her, she can manipulate him into silence by erupting into anger whenever he tries to exert his authority. And after many years of exploiting his cowardice this way, she'll have him emasculated to the point where he won't even try anymore. He knows deep down in his heart that he's abdicating his headship, but he doesn't have the courage to do anything about it. He doesn't have the courage to stand steadfast upon the word of God. He doesn't have the courage to call his wife to repent of her rebellion. He doesn't have the courage to protect her the way that God requires him to protect her. So he does nothing. And by doing nothing, he approves all the sinfulness that's going on inside his home. And there's, the, uh, and there's the father who's a coward. I just described the husband who's a coward. There's a the father who's a coward as well. He sees his daughter getting involved in a relationship that's going in the wrong direction, but he won't do anything about it. He won't do anything about it because he fears her response. She'll accuse him of not caring about her feelings. She'll tell him that he's ruining her relationship with the one person she really loves. She'll lay a guilt trip on her father, saying that she'll never get married as long as he keeps meddling in her relationships. So the father backs off. He gives her the freedom she's demanding, and he silently watches as she proceeds deeper and deeper into a relationship that he knows is going to end badly as she goes deeper and deeper into a relationship that he knows is going to injure her in ways that she may never fully recover. What our sermon text is telling us is that silence is consent. The cowardly husband and father silently gives his approval to what he knows is going to be bad for his wife, what he knows is going to be injurious to his daughter, but he does nothing. I asked the question twice already. When describing the blessings of a man who righteously exercises headship within, within his home, I asked what woman would not want this type of protection? Now I suspect that when I asked that question the first two times, you were thinking that I was asking it rhetorically you were thinking that I was basically saying every woman would want this type of protection. It's a no-brainer. Every woman would want this. Well, that's not true. It's not true that every woman wants to have a man who righteously exercises headship over her. Some women really dislike the idea of submitting to their husband. Some women really want independence from their husband's or father's authority. And some younger women think they can navigate around the landmines and pitfalls of life a lot easier if their father wasn't always interfering with her plans. The reality is some women have trouble seeing the blessing of headship. All they can see are the potential problems. 
All they can see are the reasons why they should not trust their husband or should not trust their father. All they can see are the opportunities their husband or father have to misuse the authority that God has given to them. So they resist his headship. They put obstacles in his way and try to circumvent his intervention. And this often leads to dishonesty. The wife and daughter who are trying to escape their husband and father's headship will often engage in dishonesty and lies and other forms of manipulation. It's a complicated situation. It's complicated because no husband or father is perfect. Men make mistakes, and when a husband or father makes a mistake, it, uh, it, it often has a negative effect upon the other members of his family. And so the woman who's looking for an excuse to not submit to her husband or father can always uh, point to some examples where her, her husband or father failed. She can always recall the time that he made the wrong decision. And she can probably identify some aspects of ignorance, laziness, and cowardice in his headship. But if he's a godly man who experiences godly sorrow that leads him to repentance, then this is not to be regretted. Uh, he's a man who's learn, learning from his mistakes. He's a father who's growing in his sanctification. And he's a husband who will continue to learn how to live with his wife in understanding. The truth of the matter is to submit to the husband's and father's headship, the wife and daughter do not need to trust their husband and father as much as they need to trust God. Let me say that again. To, to genuinely submit to a husband or father, the wife or daughter do not need to submit uh, uh, to trust in the husband or father as much as they need to trust in God. Why is this? Because God is the one who designed the family. And God is the one who gave headship to husbands and fathers. And God is the one who tells wives and daughters to submit to their husbands and fathers. So to the wives and daughters sitting here this morning, the trust that's required of you is to trust God. You're called to trust that God's design of the family is what works best in this fallen world. And you're called to trust that God has given you the husband and father that will be best for you, specifically you. And you're called to trust that if God intends to bless you, which if you're a Christian lady, he does intend to bless you, then you're called to trust that he will often give you that blessing by equipping your husband or father with the knowledge and wisdom to be a blessing to you. Now in saying this, I don't pretend that this is an easy thing to do. For some of you, ladies, trusting that God has given you the best husband for you, specifically for you, or the best father, specifically for you, is very difficult. It's difficult because your husband or father have not been responsible in exercising their headship. But this is why it's called trust. Trust believes God will be faithful to his promises even when the outward circumstances of your life don't appear all that favorable. What was that Bible passage 
from Proverbs that you memorized very early in your Christian walk? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your path. Do you believe this, dear sisters? Do you believe Proverbs 3? Do you believe that if you trust the Lord that he will direct your path? Do you believe that if you submit to his design for marriage that he will make your path straight? And do you believe that if you lean not on your own understanding but you acknowledge him in all your ways that he will bring showers of blessing into your life? Of course he will. Of course he will, because he is a faithful God. God is always faithful to his promises. Let's pray. This has been a presentation of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. For more resources and information, please stop by our website at visitredeemer.org. All material here within, unless otherwise noted. Copyright Redeemer Presbyterian Church, Elk Grove, California. Music furnished by Nathan Clark George. Available at NathanClarkGeorge.com.